The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for listening. It's our review of the year show where we'll try and make sense of another crazy year in the art world and all around. So to do that, I'm joined by Anna Brady, our art market editor. Hello, Anna. Hello. And by Jane Morris, former editor of the art newspaper, now one of our editors at large. Hello. And Louisa Buck, our contemporary art correspondent. Hello. I thought we'd begin by talking about a subject which has actually been moved, moving on in the last uh, couple of days, which is the, the idea of colonial restitution, particularly relating to France. Jane, you've been following this story. Yeah, well, I suppose the latest news is that the French Minister of Culture has reaffirmed that they will return 26 um, objects to Benin, I think in time for the new museum that's being planned, which I think is planned for 2021. Um, but this is a back, on the back of a big report that came out last year. It was commissioned at the behest of President Macron. We might want to talk about that because it is quite interesting that I don't think we'd be quite so happy here if uh, Boris Johnson started commissioning reports on behalf of British museums. Uh, and indeed, they aren't happy in France either. Um, but but basically, a, a very important report was commissioned. This is the Savoy Sar report, Savoy which came Sar out about report. this time last year. We did a big pod on it. Lots of fanfare, wasn't there? Yes, absolutely. And it had a very strong recommendation of the return of colonial era objects. Now, for those who are new to this subject or newish to this subject, this has been a kind of running sore for 20 years. I would say a good 15 years ago, there was a big flurry around it in the UK that sort of came to nothing. Well, not entirely to nothing. Movement was made on human remains, particularly, um, but less so on art objects. So basically, this report uh, recommended very large-scale restitution. Probably most controversially, it recommended that museums have to prove that they hold objects lawfully, which is not the standard that's required for Nazi loot. So it's gone from one extreme, in a way, to another, which is there's always been an issue. Why is Nazi loot treated like this, but colonial-era um, wars and massacres and punitive raids and so forth why they treated differently so the the two academics have done this report and basically said the presumption should be that museums have to prove the ownership and they should return everything however this requires a change in the french law just as it would do here and it would do in most other european countries unsurprisingly the french parliament doesn't look like that keen to pass this law and there is no doubt that there will be opposition, well, there is opposition amongst many French museums. Nevertheless, I think it's fair to say, and this group may well agree, but it's fair to say I think the tide is turning. I think there are classes of objects held in our museums that it is incredibly hard to defend and it rather ill behoves museums to defend. And I would expect to see some movement. And I think it was very significant that Hartmut Dogolo, the um, German director of the Humboldt Forum, which is opening hopefully in Berlin next year, he's already said that we are going to expect restitutions from Germany. The Dutch are very busy organising and it looks like they will start sending things back. Um, and I'm, as a say apart from this 26 I would expect to see further restitutions out of France the question is what's going to happen here can we see the spectre of Elgin coming out of the ether yeah I mean it's an interesting one that one isn't it because it's never quite 
got, I think, the kind of visceral problems of what happened mm, of in course, Africa. Of course, it's a totally different set of circumstances. Um, but that, that seemed to be the kind of precursor to, to these yeah. conversations. Yes, and of course, I mean, it, it, yes, it may do. I mean, the, the, the Elgin slash Parthenon marbles, depending on where you sit on the argument, uh, doesn't really go away. I mean, there's kind of a market aspect to this as well, which I don't know if you've been following, Anna, but the, the, the it looks like that Europe is bringing in increasingly strict regulation on objects, including African objects, that, that are potentially loot. Now, while that doesn't directly affect museums, as it gets tighter and tighter and tighter around art dealers to prove that their objects aren't looted, it's going to make an even greater contrast between what's held in museums and what's allowed to be freely traded. You mean on this, the new EU um, legislation about the importer licences? Yes. Where, where you have to sort of prove if it's come from somewhere that's a, a conflict zone yes. as well, that um, that you have to be able to prove how it left that country and have a paper trail. Yes, and that which obviously is... a lot of antiques do not have a paper trail yeah. for 200 years ago when they left exactly. the country. Exactly, and, and this is, again, it's it's doing something rather similar, which is I, I my understanding, which is it's starting to put more onus on the people who hold the objects or trade the objects to show that they have them lawfully. Yes. How quickly do we think that museums are moving on this? Because I think one of the things that I've perceived as a non-expert in this field and just dipping in here and there is that there are certain museum people who seem quite active, who seem to actually want to deal with this issue and others who are sort of, oh, it's very complex. You know, there's this legislation to pass. There are these rules that the museum has. You know, what's your perception, Jane, about how quickly and how much they're sort of actually grasping the nettle? I think there's probably a lot of museum staff who think that objects should be returned. I certainly think in the UK, a lot of local authority museums, but they usually speak with the convenience of not actually holding many of these objects. Uh, once you get to the level of the big museums that hold the objects, so we're talking the British Museum, we're talking Kay Bronley, we're talking the Metropolitan in New York, we're talking Berlin, we're talking Leiden, the Rijksmuseum, so forth in the Netherlands. Museums with a colonial past or museums like the Met that were rich enough to go and buy a lot of these objects. Uh, the trustees and senior staff there I think are actually quite resistant. Do you think it's a generational thing as well? The older generation curators are more keen to hang on to stuff that they've lovingly curated and they're not so worried about the... It could be and I think also that was very interesting when Absa Suif left the British Museum, she was one of the trustees, one of the reasons she gave, everyone focused on BP but actually one of the reasons she gave was the British Museum's stance on restitution and as we've mentioned in previous discussions, this did seem to take the British Museum trustees by surprise and I do wonder if that's to do with the fact that most of them are, a lot of them in their 60s, 70s and so forth and come from yeah, a particular generation that was generally anti-return or saw it as a product of a sort of nationalism abroad or identity politics i think quite a lot of us now are beginning to think that this is more a question of sort of justice really yeah it's interesting the subject of generations the idea that there are different attitudes across generations is something that taps into another subject that we wanted to discuss which which is sponsorship uh, the support of individuals for museums because it seems to me this is an area where that is absolutely the case let's take bp sponsorship it seems to me that there is a very strong groundswell among the people who are likely to be very big supporters of Extinction Rebellion, for instance, and Greta Thunberg, who are actively wanting fossil fuel sponsorship out of museums. But there is an old guard that is actively at the moment supporting them. Well, not even such an old guard. I mean, Tristan Hunter, the V&A, is putting his toes in about Sackler, not BP. But, you know, there is a sense of 
some people feeling that it's a good you know, art is great. It's good to get art seen. Public public money is is dwindling. Private money has to be found. All money is dirty up to a point. But I think now in the current climate, particularly with the whole issue around environmental emergency and global warming, that you know it's very hard to justify the BP sponsorship. And people say, well, go 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 protest with BP. Don't protest against the organisations that they sponsor. And I think Jeremy Deller actually well said that, didn't he? Yes, he did. But then that was that was a few years ago. I do think the debate has really moved on. I think you know the, the anti's been upped with the with the Extinction Rebellion demonstrations and just everyone's consciousness. The weather changing. You know, we're, we're all much more aware of it. I think that the, um, I mean, it's this question, isn't it, always about at what point does taking money from source X start to dent your reputation or seriously dent your reputation? It's hard, I think, to see that BP, also Sackler money, doesn't dent a museum's reputation. I mean, I do feel sorry for the museum sometimes. I mean, it is difficult to raise large sums of money off anyone at the moment. Corporate sponsorship has been generally pro- difficult for quite a long time. Um, and yeah, but I, I, I think that it's it doesn't look great to have protesters in the middle of museums on these kind of subjects. It's also when the artists start to protest. I yeah. think the interesting thing about Sackler, I mean, now we all know about Purdue Pharma and, and Oxycontin and you know, it's a massive scandal, but you know, Nan Golden's PAIN Prescription Addiction Intervention Now, her organisation that she set up, their demonstrations, the fact that it was predominantly artists, they did very good visually arresting demonstrations in the Guggenheim, I'm sure had a major effect in, in Guggenheim withdrawing their, their support of, of Sackler sponsorship. I mean, lying down, having a die-in in the V&A and, and you know, scattering around blood-soaked dollar bills. Let's see what it does with the V&A. But I do think once the artists start to protest, likewise also the artists protesting with uh, BP, Gary Hume making a, a letter of petition of eminent artists against BP sponsorship and the National Portrait Gallery sponsorship of the BP Portrait Award. You know, it certainly attracted more attention. I think the NPG, National Portrait Gallery, are quietly trying to let that one just wither because they've got the, the, the major refurbishment taking place. But, I mean, it is difficult. You're quite right, Jane. I mean, you know, it's all very well for everybody to get on their high horses. But when one looks at many of the names of many of the gallery doors, even the recent ones, dig into their share portfolio, I wouldn't really want to look too closely. And I think the argument that the counter-narrative, of course, is that it's not just the trustees. I mean, I asked a number of museum directors this. Only the Science Museum said that they had surveyed some of their their visitors. Um, There is limited evidence that the vast majority of visitors are bothered at all. So there is... a feeling amongst some in the museum world that this is a small, noisy minority. Now, obviously, if you're dealing with contemporary art and contemporary artists, I think it is difficult to be putting on shows where people are talking about inequality, climate change and issues like that, and then taking sponsors like BP. But I mean, I can see some museums deciding that that isn't such a big issue for them. I think in the contem- amongst the contemporary art museums, it's extremely difficult. And now. I also think, again, it's, it's, it's the whole profile thing. I mean, the organisation of you know, BP or not BP was certainly part of why the Royal, Royal Shakespeare Company decided not to have BP sponsorship, because they got fed up with these people bobbing up at every performance and, and making protests. You know, And I think it is very problematic when, when these things are thrown into people's faces. And good thing too, I would say. Yeah. I think also there's greater organisation, and we had somebody from Col- 
culture on stained on the podcast not too long ago called Jess Worth and she was she she spoke very interestingly you talked about the visual representations that they have at these protests this is not um a random group of young people making a big noise this is a very l- large gatherings of people with with very powerful conviction and and tremendous organization and also they are in touch with stakeholders they are absolutely in touch with the artist gary hume's letter came through culture unstained so they're they're almost like a consultancy to to advise people as to how to protest and i think also you know we live in an instagram selfie age and you know extinction rebellion's big pink boat culture declares climate emergency a woman walking in to the turbine hall in a in a turf a grass coat a living grass coat on a white horse in the turbine hall was a massively arresting image now i mean of course it's, there's deep proper issues and well argued statistics and, and x y and z but the fact you have these amazing images you know and this kind of mobilization i think is really crucial I mean, there's all sorts of ethical issues that are emerging in, across the world. The, the issue in the US is much more around, around individuals. Um, Warren Cand is the most famous example, the Whitney Museum. Jane, how do you think that works in terms of anybody being able to affect change? Because if it's on individuals versus companies, is it more difficult to sort of locate targets in a way? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I think America's showing that... Um activists when they're organised are quite able to locate wherever they choose because most of the super wealthy some details, not everything by any stretch, um uh, you know, details of where the, the bulk of their wealth comes is to some extent known. And I think what we've seen in New York particularly, um, and it's a question about whether it's going to transfer here um, and and to other places, uh, Sacklem would suggest that it might if people continue to organise in this way. But New York has shown that first it was Candace. He owns a company called Safariland, which manufactures security objects. So it's um, it's tear gas, handcuffs, rubber bullets, things like that. So we're not saying it's an arms manufacturer like, say, Raytheon uh, is, uh, or BA Systems are obviously arms ma- arms manufacturers. Um, anyway, so he was targeted this year. That was one of the big stories very much of this year. But there's a long list of trustees there's now. Larry Fink and Stephen Tannenbaum aren't there at, at MoMA as well. So, you know, you've got this sense again, also, again, of artists. The artists said they would yeah. withdraw their work from the Whitney Biennial if if he remained, if, if, if Candace remained as, as, the, as the vice chair, so I mean, that, therefore, yeah. that was a, a very potent way of, of getting the getting the whole. Yeah, you know, and and, and, it, and it's not all security companies. I mean, in some cases it is. Uh, there's a long list of trustees at the Whitney who have uh, relationships with arms and security companies. Um, in some cases, it's things like private prisons. And Tannenbaum is a Puerto Rican debt, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, they're, they're all these different. So I think once this digging is now beginning, I think it will very quickly transfer to the UK. I yeah. feel and yes. everywhere. And I mean, you don't need to cast your eye down the lists of trustees of many of Britain's museums to see people with very similar connections. Well, art washing has been a time-honoured practice. This is a sort of side issue before we move on to our next topic, but I don't know about you, but I've just noticed that more and more the visibility of uh, commercial art galleries as sponsors of exhibitions seems mm-hmm. to be uh, appearing in very large letters on gallery walls and it's this seems to be going un- unnoticed and the sort of ethical considerations was, of, of this aspect it hasn't really been debated enough well, I mean it was ever thus though they just did it privately they did it quietly but now of course the museums are so desperate for sponsorship because everybody's looking long and hard into the other sponsors portfolios the commercial galleries are being able to be have more leverage and, and name their terms I they've think they've got more. great logos as well on, on <laughs> Well, I think the best for me was in Venice, which was the Basilitz show at the Academia. I mean, the the, the press packs were actually Gagosian press packs, not Academia press 
jetpacks and there was a phalanx of senior Gagosian staff waiting outside to greet their guests, friends, customers, whatever we want to call them, uh, alongside the, 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 the warding staff and curatorial staff. I mean, that one was it like... It was like the Venice Biennale brought to you by the Megas, wasn't yeah, it? it was, absolutely. Uh, all jazz hands. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the Megas. The, the Megas are expanding and expanding. The, there is no... We've been talking all year about a sort of, uh, a sort of uh, plateauing of, of the market, but the Mega Galleries are expanding, Anna. Yes, they are. I mean, the pace has been obviously the big story. In terms of physical expansion, the huge eight-storey um, space that they built in Chelsea, I, mean, I think in terms of the building boom and the physical expansion, it's very much something that's felt within just a few streets in New, in New York as well, in Chelsea. So that is where Pace opened in September, this enormous, apparently nearly, I think nearly 80 million um, great big space um, but there's going to be others as well Kasmin is expanding, Gagosian has apparently taken on Mary Boone's old gallery um, and that's going to open next year, Hauser and Worth and Marlborough as well are going to be opening big galleries next year and um, Zwerner is building a Renzo Piano um, tower I think, I think it's going to be five stories which is about 50 million plus which is going to open in 2021 so there's, I mean, I don't know that there's going to be a patch of Chelsea that's not being built on, to be honest, in the next couple of years. I mean, we've been talking about that. This is, in a way, we, this is the end of a decade as well. And, and the mega galleries have, in, in, in a sense, been one of the big stories. They've, you know, they, all of them have been around for a very long time. But, but actually, you know, the, their power seems to have grown. What are the implications for the wider art world, Louisa? Well, I think this cross-dressing with institutions is really interesting. You know, you have big commercial gallery logos in the public gallery and museum shows. You then have the commercial galleries building these enormous buildings with, you know, top spec exhibiting yeah. environments, catalogues that are besplattered with footnotes and erudite essays. Um, so you have this sense of, of the commercial, of the market really beginning to dictate the terms much more. And it's going to make it much harder, I would think, also for public museums and galleries to be able to actually acquire works because the prices will go up, there'll be bidding wars. I mean, it's very, very difficult, I think. Yeah, I mean, going into... I, I haven't been into the pay space since it opened, but I did a sort of hard hat, the more fun tour when it's still being built um, in May. And it's extraordinary it really is like like a museum it's got you know sort of huge great big roof terrace they can take um food trucks if you wish to up in the lift to the roof terrace so that they can have kind of you know food markets whatever sort of outdoor events and then above that hangs a big performance space it's unbelievable what they're turning into nowadays and they absolutely are they've got better facilities i'd say than most um institutions now so this is where I think the art world connects to the outside world. I was I was going to say real world, but the art world is the real world too. So the outside world. I mean, the, back in the 90s, I think we all thought, and going forward, we thought the internationalisation of the art world was a really good thing. And in many ways, it has been. So we now have galleries all over the world. We have artists all over the world having successful careers. Um, the art buying public is more and more international. And there's been a relatively free flow of of artworks ish you know obviously still very difficult to get stuff into places like brazil but basically there's been a free flow of artworks the problem is and it's a problem of globalization everywhere it does tend to concentrate power in a very few hands we've seen it in the music industry we've seen it in lots of industries and in our world that's been a handful of museums like the tate and moma who've come out as winners in in this arms race if you like a handful of very big galleries a number of very big artists let's say maybe 20 um and you know i am certainly 
I'm one of the least enthusiastic for nationalist populists and the like. But we can see why this pushback has started to come. And in the art world, the result has been that middle galleries, smaller galleries, middle museums, smaller museums, non-profit spaces, unless you've got some very, very special niche, it's very tough for everybody. They find it hard to get the donations. They find it hard to buy the art. Um, and I think, you know, there is very much a tale of the haves and the have-nots going on, which I'm sure there's plenty of people in our sort of wider society would recognise. We've, we've all of us been seeing lots of exhibitions in London this year and over the last decade, over many, many years. How do we feel about the ecosystem in our city at the moment, Louisa? Well, I think the whole property boom in London, one sees these big, shiny, largely empty developments going up. It's so expensive to get anywhere to live, let alone have as a studio. If you're a young artist setting out, it's really, really hard. So, you know, you have this sense of, of artists moving out of London altogether. A lot of artists have moved to the South Coast. Galleries have moved to the South Coast as well. But you have this sense of, of it being, you know, really very problematic in terms of, in terms of how actually the middle the middle range galleries also how they survive because let's not forget that you know all these galleries still have a physical presence you can't only show you can only show in the major art fairs if you actually have a gallery program but it's very hard to pay your rent to do your to have your gallery program and there's a sort of hollowing out of the center the really mm. gritty artist run spaces are probably always going to be kind of okay because they can always bob up in a garage somewhere or you know lurk around for a couple of a couple of months and then vanish and go somewhere else and have some flexibility but it's a and the high ones, the big corporate ones we've just said, they have all the power. It's the middle range ones, the ones whose artists haven't got a secondary market. That's the real problem, I think. Anna, you, you've been following the contemporary art market and a supposed downturn in the contemporary mar- market this year. Is, 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 is that real for a start? And, and, and are you finding that uh, there is a continuing fall in the mid- middle market spaces? I think there's been, well, certainly the party line this year has been, that, and it's true, there have been very, very few estates, which if you're looking at the very, very top top end of the international contemporary well modern imps and mods and um post-war contemporary market that relies on bigger states really to bring in some, some really massive works and there just haven't been any this year so that has definitely taken down you know the figures are much lower than they were um last year but what i don't think that it's as simple as just saying there's a downturn in the contemporary market because that is one thing I mean, the the top lot of this year and it sounds ridiculous saying that it's not that high i mean it is but it was um monet's haystacks which sold in sotheby's in new york in may and that made 110.7 million dollars so that's the top trifling lot. i know so, and then it was it was followed by jeff keen's bunny was rabbit um which was 91 million um so but all the big sales really happened in may there's definitely been a downturn into november as well in terms of consignments i just think that the way that things are globally at the moment aren't great and certainly the london sales really because of brexit they've always fallen behind a bit but they've been very flat this year i would say but for the contemporary market i don't know that there's been a downturn really because you've then got all the day sales you've got the big factor of the galleries kind of controlling the primary markets of a lot of very hot young artists or well, not even that young but um then you really see some spikes at auction still you really see this kind of you know casino kind of bidding going on in the sale rooms um for certain artists work on the secondary market just because people can't get access on the primary market because dealers the megas as we were talking about and other ones are being Depending on how you look at it, you could say that they're protecting their markets or you could say that they're controlling their markets. I think we know which we all think in this room. Um, but let, you mentioned Brexit there. One of the stories, and I'd like to 
explore whether we think it's a real thing or just a, a nice line uh, of this year is that because of Brexit, lots of the bigger galleries are shifting their attention to Paris. Is this a real thing or is it just, a, as I say, like a kind of a convenient line to, to, to evoke the Brexit malaise? So I think, well, first of all, it has proved quite a good line and quite a good angle for us as journalists. There's definitely more interest in Paris and um, some of the factual things and the fact that Zwerner obviously came out and spoke quite, he was quite vocal about it, I think, in July about opening his gallery, which opened during FIAC in October, saying that, I think he said, Brexit um, changes the game and that he considered his London gallery to now be a British gallery and not a European one. Um, White Cube are also going to open an office and there's been a lot of chat about whether House and Worth will be opening a Paris gallery. Um, but they they say not at the moment. So we know that there is that sort of move, but there are kind of there's a lot of red tape in in France and there's also very high taxes on art sales which hinder that market and have hindered that market since the sort of, would we say that they had a bit of a golden era in the 1950s in in Paris? So there's quite a lot of kind of factual reasons. And also when you look at the amount of of trade that we do within the EU, Claire McAndrew in her Art Basel report says that um, the UK accounts for 66% of the EU's art trade. So we are hugely powerful. France, she calculates, is um, worth about 6% of the global art market, and that's sort of fourth place. So it's got quite a lot of catching up to do. It's been presented as an opportunity for them to really step up. Um, and sorry, by, by them I mean France and, and specifically Paris, but um, it's just whether you know, there's a lot of kind of um, bureaucratic reasons why it may not be able to. I mean, I think it depends a lot. What we, it obviously depends what kind of deal we get. There was a lot of fear at the time that there was going to be a a hard Brexit and a very big tariff border. And if you're bringing art in from outside the EU, at the moment we're the cheapest in London, 5% import VAT, Paris is next, 5.5%. So if you are able to hedge like these big galleries are, it was it makes absolute sense to open in Paris. It's your backstop if there's going to if there's a big hard border here. (laughs) If there isn't a hard border, then Paris is still probably a good place to be because there's a lot of high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals. Um, And I know, you know, I did a talk and people were tweeting me saying, you know, why are they all talking about ultra high net worth and high net worth individuals? I mean, if you buy 10, 20,000 pounds worth of art, I mean, using sort of normal calculations, it means you've got probably half a million to a million pounds of disposable income, not including the house you live in. So we're talking high net worth individuals, even at what we call the low end (laughs) of the art market. Um, Zwerner said something very interesting, though, to the Paris press, where he said it could be great in London. It all depends what happens with taxes on the ultra high net worth and wealthy individuals. And his words were, London could become like Switzerland you know it could be a great place for the ultra wealthy and he then said so I'm keeping my London gallery it does extremely well thank you very much and then said but of course um, Paris is my European HQ which technically it now is its European HQ because we're leaving the EU (laughs) Um, I think there's been some very clever use of language around all of this Um, and I think he got a lot of good coverage and played it both sides of the fence Paris and London Um, it it all depends what happens with the tax situation and to say if Boris decides to cut taxes on the rich we tightened up a lot recently if he untightens then I think we can see the good time roll if we have a hard border and lots of taxes on the rich we won't 
Well, our non-DOM, of course, population are our major art buyers in the UK. Yeah. So mm-hmm. as soon as things get difficult for them, then art sales plummet in the UK as a result. So, yes, it's very interesting to see what happens tax-wise. Yeah. And I mean, Claire McAndrew said, she said, to, I mean, I'm just being devil's advocate here because obviously I could see this all being pretty bad for us. I mean, culturally, it looks pretty terrible. Um, but, you know, art sales in 2018 rose by 8% in London overall, which is, you know... Does the kind of dynamism of the art scene have anything to do with it? Because certainly in France, you know, they haven't got in Paris particularly, you haven't got the kind of same active art school population. Well, you haven't even... got the same kind of situation. I mean, it's, it's, even though our students are now being bedecked with fees, there still is a, a much livelier kind of grassroots art scene going on in London, I would argue. I think so. There's more art schools here. And also, I was going to talk about how difficult it is to be an artist now compared with the 90s, because it really is. I mean, just the practical sums, it's much yeah. harder. Nevertheless, it seems like it's even more expensive in Paris. Yeah. I think it's incredibly expensive. It's very hard to be self-employed there. Taxes are very high. Uh, you know, rents are very high. It, it's interesting that to be frank, that Germany has never made it easier or done more to stimulate its art market. That's the one I never really understand. Yeah, I understand. can never understand Germany. <laughs> it's, it should be winning. Yeah, and it totally totally just be. doesn't. I, don't, I, I really don't. It's a mystery to me. I mean, going back to, to um, the UK and in terms of our art market afterwards, some people are saying that Brexit could present an opportunity for us to obviously strike, as you say, depends on what we do with tax, but also in terms of um, you know our trade deals with other countries as well. And at the moment, according to HMRC, our um, sales of art and antiques um, to this the is, EU... This is the taxation yeah. body in the UK. Yep. So in 2018, their figures were that we sold just over £200 million worth to the EU, but we sold 4.9 billion to um, outside the EU, and the US and Asia are our massive markets when it comes to art, uh, to art and antiques. Culturally, ideologically, I think it goes against much of the art world as well, and a lot of yeah. leaders have spoken out against it. But you know, unfortunately, from my personal point of view, it might be that it could benefit the market if they if they strike positive deals. Yeah, and if there isn't a hard border, because if there's a very hard border, I think that would be a disaster for the middle and smaller galleries. Well, that's the thing, is that for the middle and smaller galleries, I think it's already, if you talk to dealers and um, who are not, we're talking very much at the high end, and it's not them that it's going to affect. They'll be, And they'll also be able to, as we've seen, they're very nimble, they can manoeuvre themselves into being in the best place, and they can afford to. But it's those UK dealers who deal... Um, you know, in the middle market, it's, whether in art or antiques, they're having a really, really tough time at the moment because they're also selling to the people, trying to sell to the people who are really feeling um, feeling the pinch too now. So for them, and again, we talked about the distance that, um, between the sort of very top end and the middle lot, and it's another reason why that's only going to broaden even more. OK, well, we're going to take a quick break now, and then we'll be back talking more about the year in review after this. In January, Bonhams will mark the recent opening of its new offices in downtown San Francisco by staging a selling exhibition, Trailblazers, Californian Artist at Bonhams. Among the works on show and to be acquired are two pieces by the American-Japanese sculptor Ruth Asawa. California born and raised, Asawa studied at Black Mountain College under Joseph Albers, but it was on a visit to Mexico in the 1950s that she developed the technique for which she was to become famous. 
Taking her cue from the villages of Toluca, who crocheted baskets from galvanised wire, she began to produce abstract wire sculptures that were effectively line drawings in three dimensions. Bonham's specialist in post-war and contemporary art in San Francisco, Amelia Mandershield, said, It's great to have two archetypal Asawa works in this sale that celebrates not only the opening of our new premises, but also the company's long association with San Francisco and the West Coast. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. So we're still here, Anna Brady, me, uh, Jay Morris and Louisa Buck. And we're going to begin this section by talking about probably the most shocking heritage story of the year, which I'll take us back to the 15th of April and about 7pm here in the UK, our Twitter feed started filling up with images of Notre Dame on fire. Jane, what are your memories of that evening? Well, I think I was actually in the pub and I remember looking at my phone and at this point you couldn't see the flames, you could just see all this black smoke. And when you put the sound on, you could just hear all these people just going <gasps> all around it. And you realise, because it's just on a little phone, how many people must be there. Um, no, I mean, I mean, initially, I guess you think, oh, it's the roof, but maybe, maybe the rest of it will stand. But very quickly they started to say that it might not be saved. And the idea that Notre Dame could fall is truly shocking. Oh, the, the heart and soul of Paris. And also you kind of think, but they must be able to put it out. Surely they can just put it out. And then realises how immensely complex addressing this kind of situation is. I do want to say that it does seem to me always when some historic building is being refurbished, this is when it happens. I mean, one thinks of, you know, Glasgow Art School. You know, it does it was having its final touches put on them, but the builders were still in there. And I'm thinking of, of Clandon, um, that, that, the stately home, the 18th century stately home in Surrey. Again, the builders were in, it was being refurbished. Battersea Art Centre in London. It always seems to be when there's refurbishing work going on. I mean, there must be some kind of lesson to be learnt, please. You know, yes, make I mean, your, building make... projects at museums across the world, sort of uh, holding their breath about this. I yes. Mean, that, you know, that it, I, I suppose one of the things that really interests me about this subject is it's brought in all sorts of other interesting aspects of heritage and art in the sense that there was a battle of the billionaires really quickly to fund this jane you, you know it was it was this sort of pissing contest between the major <laughs> uh, donors to, to this project I'm not, should should we talk about two of our great private museum owners in that tone uh yeah no it was exactly what it was like wasn't it uh, and i forget which way it round it was but you know one one pino and arno one one promised 100 million euros and then i think the next one promised 200 million euros i mean i've no idea if these bills have well uh, one does wonder have been paid um but yeah no i mean suddenly there was this great sort of outpouring of of people who were going to fund this project i mean i think i think the the problem of course is that we're still not sure are we about whether or not i mean if there was this great sort of sense of joy that oh it's going to stand it's going to stand but now we're not really so sure are we so so i think the jury's very much out on what this might eventually look like i mean do we have any evidence that rebuilding in the form of pastiche works jane well i mean it's this constant debate isn't it i mean we saw it in many places across europe and you can understand why you can understand why dresden why they wanted to rebuild dresden looking like dresden um warsaw the same um i mean there's many cities across europe where particularly in germany where where cities were at least parts of cities were recreated in the way they had been i think there's a bit of a discussion about some are more successful than others i think it depends on how it's done too i mean surely with notre dame it's been so well documented so meticulously documented it would make sense to restore it to a pretty much as it was 
before before it went up in flames, as they did with Glasgow School of Art, because there are kind of iconic architectural gems, you know, and there's a sense of the context for the, for the bits that have survived. If there's some sort of, you know, strange postmodern or modern sort of riff on it, it all starts to look a bit scary and indeed immediately dated. So I would say meticulously restored to its previous state. Yeah, I think I agree. It's because they take enormous human character as well. I think that was what kind of really got people about Notre Dame, is it's almost like, this going to sound awful, but it's almost like watching a, a sort of a grandmother burning down. It, I think like it was it was interesting that the, the response and the outpouring of grief about it was very much because people see it as a, as a sort of human. Yeah, and 1,500 years or so more of people worshipping there. It's not It's not something to lightly give up. Indeed. I mean, it, was, it was a rare moment on Twitter where there was a general consensus about something being one thing or another. Although within a few hours, people were saying, why don't people care about people as much as they care about this building in Paris? But that's another story. Um, let's move on to, a, well, is it as good a news story as it's being presented? I'm going to talk about the very much greater prominence of women artists in museums. Now, I think that's been an unarguable thing that we've seen, certainly in London this year, for instance, and it seems to be a global phenomenon. And the crescendo has been gathering. I mean, it was last year. It was. I mean, the year was seen in by two great shows: the Hilma Afklint at the at the, at the, um, at the Guggenheim, that fantastic Swedish visionary artist, you know, pioneering abstractionist, but very strange arcane work that got them their highest attendance figures ever. Um, and then Annie Albers at Tate Modern again. You know, she was overshadowed by her by her Bauhaus husband, not allowed, not allowed to join the painting school, became a textile artist instead. And I mean, a resoundingly successful show, again, packing in many, many people. And then into the whole year, then we had you know, Lee Krasner, Living Colour at the Barbican, a fantastic show, overshadowed by Jackson Pollock. And then you realise, actually, she was as good, I would say, actually, rather better artist than Jackson Pollock in, in many respects. Dora Maar, overshadowed by Picasso, not such a great artist as Picasso, but nonetheless a fantastic surrealist photographer. I mean, I could go on and on. And then, of course, the wonderful wonderful show of um, of Bridget Riley at the Hayward which she's going to tour um, there was also Elizabeth Payton at the, at the National Portrait Gallery with with the historical collections as well a great show of Cindy Sherman I mean many many great female artist shows and moving on into the into, into next year the Royal Academy is going to have more shows by women than by men it's got a lot of hit, a lot of catching up to do on that front but you know <laughs> so there is very much the sense of institutionally the museums are Tate and I making a real concerted effort only you know to, to, to really build up the female collections. Baltimore Museum of Arts actually said in 2020 they're only going to acquire works by women artists, although they are still, I think, going to accept quite a lot of male, pale and stale donations from rich donors. So institutionally things are going well, but when one looks across the board, one looks at the market, one looks at the amount of artists leaving art schools, amount of amount of female art students graduating who then go on to become practising artists, the representation of the galleries, it's a very different story. So... Uh, let's go. Let's dig down into that to that very different story then, because there was a there was an important survey published early this year on Artnet and in other words, which which in a sense gave the lie to this perception of greater prominence for women in in certainly in terms of U.S. museums, Jane. Yeah, I think they they found that eleven percent. They they surveyed twenty six major museums, and they found that eleven percent of acquisitions and fourteen percent of solo shows had been devoted to women artists. Uh, I mean, I presume they've taken group shows. I'm guessing out of. I mean, they must have done taken group shows out of that figure. But they also said that the peak in terms of acquisitions was in 2010. Now. I think acquisitions is a bit of a tricky one because as we've just touched on, because art is now so expensive, the vast majority of art comes in by gifts, uh, not by museums spending their own money. Or it comes in with 
you know, we see museums going around the art fairs with their patrons, but to quite a large extent, I'm sure they have a long list of things they would like, but to a large extent, it depends which patron is prepared to pay for what. So although we know there are collectors, I think probably mostly women, but maybe men as well, who support the acquisition of women artists, I suspect that in general, there are probably still more people who want to pay for a Rauschenberg than perhaps for a Joan Mitchell, although I have no evidence for that. So please, the dealers, if I'm wrong, Tell us. No, but then you look at the market and you think, you know, Jenny Savile, the, the, the highest price for a woman artist was, was 12.4 million and Jeff Koons 91.1, no. you know, and I mean, that that spectrum really is there. I was going to say, oh, as far as acquisitions go, it's a good thing women are so so cheap still isn't it yeah i still feel like we should compare like with like a bit more though because i feel no, like no, we, maybe you com- can't you can't compare like like with like for that on that on that level yeah. although it does kind no, of i was thinking more in. peter doig and jenny savile perhaps because i mean whatever we think of coons he's he's in the canon i mean and yeah but but peter doig also is is still making yeah, yeah. substantially larger that's what sums I'm saying. of money I think as well a, i think that's a, a perhaps a better comparison or, no, but i was just using that as as, a, as the highest price for the, a living male and the highest price for a living female you know that's and, and that and you look at the polarity of that of jeff coons to, to jenny savile i mean i think then then it not the not that price is in any way an indicator of quality but as you say that's what the collectors then will want to buy and then acquire and i think it is going to be it's, it's going to be interesting to see but you're right also anna that that there's a lot of bargains to be got in the in the market. Of, of, of a lot of feminist art is now being shown and acquired, and, and you know, yeah, vintage I mean, I, feminist I was being kind of good, but, well. I, but actually, it's not really. It was a joke, but it's not because mm. it's still painfully true. Yeah, that women true. are so much more affordable. But, and... but art advisors say that, don't they? I mean, they there are art advisors encouraging people because the the price, as you say, is so much lower relatively. Um, you know, we can say Joan Mitchell compared with half the other you know abstract expressionists. Well, She's still a very you know relative. A, you know, a good, a good buy. How they tackle this, I don't know, because this goes right to the heart of the sort of things we've been touching on throughout this podcast, which is it's a relatively small handful of patrons, donors, trustees who kind of influence a lot of what actually gets bought but by But I museums. do think having these great shows, and there really have been, and I just rattled off a few, but having these great shows does very much put women artists and hopefully so we won't need to use the word women artists it's just be artists within programs and then within within the market because you know they, they, the two do interconnect i mean quite ominously in many in many cases so therefore one has a sense of the more kind of institutional prominence is given to high quality work by often underrated artists and not also just from europe and north america but from you know from throughout india throughout africa these senses of really redressing the balance in all these respects the middle east then then there's a sense of it, it really being able to equal. I think also there is an issue and I think Vanessa Carlos at Carlos Ishigawa, she was at a talk where she pointed this out and it just chimed with me so strongly and it was to do with when women leave art school and it was she was talking about the fact, which I remember very well from my days as well at St Martin's, that when we left, many men got jobs as technicians inside artist studios. It's well paid work, it keeps you right connected into the kind of vibrant life of 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 how deals are being made and galleries and so forth and women tended to go into much 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 lower paid arts administration work and the minute you're in that world the chances of you being able to afford a studio and your rent on a part-time job are incredibly low to non-existent frankly and I think it starts right from there in my opinion and we've got this constant problem that how do women manage that? And then, of course, you know, sorry to be sort of cliched, but it's not. It's a truism. 
you hit 30, it's often the point where people's careers are beginning to take off and women's careers are much more affected by children than men's are. And until we start to fix some of these problems, I mean, all these problems need fixing. I'm just saying it starts. Well, they're huge socioeconomic problems that impact on the art world, basically. It's the problems about yeah. inequality, gender inequality throughout the workplace. And the art world, of course, is, is a prime example of that. But I do think that's very interesting what you say about the male technicians because you are then tapped into the club, as yeah. it were. Whereas yeah. if you're sidelined, then you're not. So, may, I, so maybe the art schools could be teaching more technical skills that, to, are, to that are in demand, fabrication skills that are in demand, for example. Anna, in, in terms of the market, do you perceive that there is a, any kind of shift in terms of galleries actually actively campaigning for women artists? You know, are, latching on to this idea and saying, OK, we are going to create a market for more women artists. Yes, I think there definitely is. But I think it's kind of like any any market will look for areas where they can create some value. So my cynical side says that, but I think I think there generally are people that, that obviously want to promote these women and there's definitely a shift towards that I would say among the gallery world most of the gallery world and particularly among the smaller and younger galleries who I, th- who I think are absolutely brilliant and I don't think you see this divide between men and women but it's a kind of so you've got what the galleries are doing and as I say the kind of the more towards the grassroots you go the more equality I think you see what happens and where you get the real time lag is when you get up into the secondary market and then particularly at auction. So by the time, and then even more so when you get up to the evening sales, because those sales are kind of reflecting what was going on in the galleries back in the in the 50s or whenever, whenever it was. And so we're going to kind of have to wait till it, till it catches up, really. So if you look at the, at the values for the work sold this year at auction, um, you get down to number. I got all of the top results from um, Phillips, Bonhams, Christie, Sotheby's today, and you get down to number fourteen before you get to Louise Bourgeois' Spider, um, which was thirty-two million. Still, you know, a fair amount of money, but um, she's and she's all sort of out on her own as well in front. So it's still hugely dominated by men at that top end. Yeah, and Louise Bourgeois is unarguably an artist she kind of who's in the it. art historical story. So Absolutely. But then you also see that it returns to the thing that we're talking about, sort of protecting or controlling markets as well. You get these very hot artists who tend to be kind of, say, be put in at the, the lot number one and an evening sale, the ones that kind of go crazy. Um, so if you take, for example, Shabalala herself, who's been incredibly hot artist this year and is brilliant, one of her works sold, I think it was in June in London. Um, it sold for three hundred and seventy, just over three hundred and seventy thousand pounds, having been estimated, I think, at sort of forty to sixty. Um, and you'd think, oh, that was that's brilliant. That that's young artists who's doing incredibly well. And yes, it is. But um, then you also have to consider that, that work was bought by Jose Magrabi, the very big dealer. And I'm I'm not saying that he didn't have you know fight for female equality at the forefront of his mind but I'm not saying that he he did either he wanted a hot artist who everybody is clamoring for but I do think there have been good initiatives I mean Richard Saltoon Gallery having his 100% women mm. program for sure um, yeah. and and Alison Jakes a yeah. middle a, a upper middle gallery very much you know championing feminist work um, Linda Bengalis is, is at Thomas Dane as well um, so you know there is there is a sense of, of galleries realizing yes 
the, the prices are still low, but I think there is a, a growing market that, that mm. is there to be developed. Yeah. It's so exciting that a lot of those female artist shows, maybe just because I am a woman as well, but I don't think it's just that. It is just like this sort of unplanned sort of pharaoh as well. It's so rich in terms of what you can. Uh, it can was bring great out. to see Valley Exports, you know, the radical Austrian feminist taking taking over Tadeusz Ropak yeah. in Mayfair. You know, I mean, I think, and when those people start showing those kind of works, you know, that there, really, there is a bit of an incline going Feminists on. Feminists in Mayfair. Who just <laughs> But but it is interesting also that Anna's pointing to a kind of strata, not just we, we think we always talk about the hierarchies of the market and we talk about strata of influence, but it's a strata of conservatism that you've just described there. It's, it's not just about money. Money guides it, but it, there are lots of attitudes. There's a strata of attitudes there too, right, Jane? Yeah, and I, I don't know. We, we need to do a survey, don't we? We need to see how many times these artists have been re-shown at the great museums around the world. And I think we would see a pretty good correlation, actually. I'm sure there's been a lot more, uh, I don't know, Jeff Koons shows than Jenny Savile shows, let's say. So it's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's a phenomenon across the art world where you repeat the same artist and you see the same phenomena which ends up with these very big price differences. And also the, the sense of box ticking as well. They're, phew, we've done our, our th- three women artists in a row. Now we can go back to, you know, showing male pale stale men again. I mean, there is that sort of sense of, of, of wondering how much tokenism. But I, I, I don't feel there is, because I think there are enough now women in the curatorial board and women museum and gallery directors where actually this is, and it's a generational thing again, I think. This is mm. filtering through where there is this change afoot, I feel. Yeah, it's not going anywhere. I hope it's not. We're not. I don't think it can be. We're not. <laughs> One of the things that uh, you discussed there was that you talked about the Baltimore Museum of Art. Now, one of the ways in which I think this can be addressed is that the Baltimore Museum of Art took a very, very bold attitude to African-American artists in its collection, literally deaccessioning white artists in order to be able to fund the acquisition of, of, of uh, black artists. And I think this is a really interesting thing, is that given that there is this genuine uh, inequality amongst museum acquisitions. Is it time for American museums who can deaccession to increasingly do that in order to acquire women artists? To have affirmative action, basically, and just go for it. Well, I mean, I think there is a strong case for that. Obviously, then you start getting that very nitty-gritty thing about uh, assessing quality because, you know, you want to keep the top rank artworks by any artist of any colour, creed, gender, background, whatever, and then jettison the slightly less less interesting stuff to then be able to acquire more. But I think to actually stop acquiring altogether, I don't know, it's quite draconian, isn't it? And then for how long? What, for a year? Then you carry on as usual again? I mean, I think you need to have a proper sea change where you really are assessing what's there, but you always, always want to have parity and or, or perhaps a majority female acquisition. Also, I think I don't think the art going public likes DA acquisitions. They don't even seem to like them in America. I mean, obviously, we can't do it here, but I don't think they really like it. I think I think that fair enough what Baltimore did. I mean, he got a lot of flack, weirdly, from all sides of the fence. For yeah, one this reason, is Christopher Bedford, this is Christopher the Bedford, yeah, he got quite a lot of flack from you know women academics who saying it wasn't enough, and then you know others misunderstanding. I think the deaccession thing. I mean, I think it would be good if museums, and perhaps they're doing it, spent more time, I guess, trying to encourage their patrons and donors to help them raise money and collect because they are meant to be custodians you know and, and not be flogging it off and 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 changing 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 the, it's a very difficult thing i think you're right build in and build up rather than get rid of 
it's probably one of the issues again we're kind of touching on it all the time here about the fact that there's perhaps too much proximity between trustees and donors because trustees should really be setting strategic priorities and I think perhaps if you didn't particularly in the states if you didn't have so many donors sitting on your boards it would be easier for the trustees to say this is a strategic priority and our fundraising priority for the next however many years is going to be to find donors to to help fund these kind of acquisitions and preferably not donors with you know <laughs> who are funded by the arms industry arms <laughs> industry one event where i was really conscious where i felt there was some sense of equality this year was the Venice Biennale, the main show at the Venice Biennale, curated by Ralph Rugoff from the Hayward Gallery. Um, I felt a very particularly strong presence of African-American artists this year. There was an extraordinary work by Arthur Jaffer, the White Album. Arthur Jaffer won the Golden Lion for Best Artist in the main show. That was, I think, the standout work. But there was Khalil Joseph, for instance, as well, who made an extraordinary series of works. I, I, you know, that, that show felt genuinely progressive in that sense and also was tremendously enjoyable visually. I don't know what you guys thought. Well, I felt the same way. And I thought it was a very bold move of Ralph Rugoff to have the, the Arsenale venue and the international pavilion showing the same artists in each so you had double the amount of work by half the amount of artists which meant you could actually look at works in depth and see different kinds of strains in artists practice and that was really interesting and a sense also of it not being sort of crazily affirmative I mean you walked into the art and there was a great big crazy George Kondo painting you know looking sort of dystopian and extraordinary so you know you had this this very much this sense of, of being assailed on all sides by artists of different generations different backgrounds and right across the globe. Yeah, I mean, some people criticised it, I think, for saying, you know, he'd played too safe and the artists were too well known. I mean, I think he made it clear from the outset that he wanted this to be an exhibition that the general art interested public would enjoy and of course the general art interested public have almost certainly seen almost none of these artists Um, and also when people say that I always think they should be set a little quiz and if they can give us a nice sharp line about each artist I'll accept that they really did know quite a lot about that artist's (laughs) work because I can say there were plenty of people in there whose names I knew I didn't really know what their work was like and this was a really great opportunity to see two different aspects of their work because that was the concept as Louisa touched on that you saw one kind of work in the Arsenale a contrasting strand of their work you know the idea that artists are not are not um, just single artworks or single strands of artwork so who thought Ed Atkins does all those spider drawings for example I had no idea and and young young Kenyan English artist Michael Armitage you know you saw these extraordinary oil paintings that he does on on the hemp the the the, the, the fabric backgrounds but then little works on paper of, of demonstrations during 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 government elections which I know, actually like better which, which were glorious <laughs> it was great. Now, the biggest controversial story of the Venice Biennale this year focused on a great controversialist, Christoph Buchel. Jane, tell us about that work. Oh, now, this was an interesting one. It's caused an enormous amount of fuss, and, I, and I'm still thinking about it, actually, about how I feel about it. There was a boat... Those who don't know the Arsenale, it's a, it's a it's a medieval dockyard. So and there's also the famously this big 19th century crane built in Britain, which they're always trying to raise money to restore. And everyone in the art world who goes to Venice knows it because it's the site of one of the cafes. It's the site of one set of loos, which believe me, they're hard to find at the Venice Biennale. So we all know where they are. And next to this crane was this rusting boat. Now, my first approach to this was, I'm in a dockyard. It's got rusting boat it's a rusting boat uh, and then I realised that this must be the work by Christoph Buchel because we had our maps and we were kind of ticking things off it's a fishing boat it left 
It left Libya. It's not a very big boat. It on the way to Italy, packed full of people escaping, uh, you know, people escaping war via Libya. And they were hit by a Portuguese rescue vessel. But because everybody, most people were locked in below decks, they couldn't escape. The boat sank and around 1,100 people died despite the efforts of the rescuers. So this boat was basically parked up in the middle of the of the Arsenale. It had a great gash in the side Um and of course, when you realised what it was, um, I, I actually thought it was quite powerful once I realised what it what it was, because you thought, gosh, it's so it's so small. And that gash, there's something really horrible about, as you can imagine, the whole thing. The problem came because at the instruction of the artist, it should be said, there was no label uh, around the work. And there was a suspicion that part of the idea had been to have the art world eating, drinking, gaffoing, having coffees, you know, taking selfies in front of this boat. Um, And that was felt to be very disrespectful to the people who died. Uh, You could argue it's also not tremendously respectful of the art world either, since most of them were kind of oblivious. Um, we don't know what the point of this piece is and we might want to talk a bit more about what we think that piece was actually about but that's at the root of the row. The fact is that he said, Bukel, that because it was described in great detail in the catalogue that accompanied the, the the exhibition, then that was enough to justify it being unlabeled in situ. I still don't understand why he didn't put the label. Every other artwork in that Biennale was comprehensively labeled. If you're going to show something as contentious as that, to make a sort of almost like a kind of a practical joke, a sort of elephant trap out of it, where you're meant to be caught unawares. And okay, yes, maybe if you had been having a selfie by this rather sort of picturesque boat. But how would you but, know? But how would you know? How would you know? And also kind of how horrible and disrespectful why put something in there that was going to going to incite that kind of activity we all know that the art world's un- uncaring and, and 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 foolish in many respects the human race is but it seemed to me a particularly crass gesture I if, if you were defending buchel you might say complacency was the subject of the work and therefore in order for it to function properly that needed for the art world or whoever was in venice whoever was sipping their espresso next to this boat didn't know what it was and it symbolized the complacency that europe fortress europe has to people trying to get here from war-torn countries but even if it had the label in a way that would have been as much of a kind of indication of the crassness or more so because people would have probably still eaten their ice creams and done all the despicable things that people do you know in front of in front of a, what was effectively a mass grave um in the same way so i, I still don't really understand i think it was a kind of cheap cheap gesture i felt you know to make to make it the subject complacency you're you're stretching it i think ben really you're being you're being very charitable and there was, are other ways I was attempting to be charitable there are other ways there are other ways that that could have been done he's done it before though do you all remember the shopping trolleys so freeze new york um i think it was 2012 it was one of the ones i did so it's it's one of those earlier ones freeze new york he bought shopping trolleys from the homeless and i think he charged between 35,000 and 100,000 dollars for them as artworks and he'd actually paid them one percent of that and he called the piece the one percent and the idea was supposed to be that uh one percent of americans were expected to become homeless and everything was one percent of one percent and so on and so on and so forth there was something kind of distasteful about that one i bet he didn't give any of the money to homeless charities from his sale price but that's slightly different i mean it's pretty creepy as well but it's different to a mass grave i feel like you know, people yeah, died I mean, in that boat, if you, you can know. imagine you know for instance would it would he have been able to or, or would it have been 
acceptable in any way to have taken, say, a train carriage or a tube carriage from London that had been involved in the collision, people had died in it, and then to put the carcass of that in the Venice Biennale. It just wouldn't happen, you know, yeah, in a, a very or point. in a European country. It just, it would not have happened. And I think that was just what, you know, it just seemed to be a plaything of the art, of the artist. And it was, as you say, a graveyard. And also he must have, he had to get permission, presumably, from whoever held the wreck to to bring it to Venice. So, and it's sort yeah. of value we place Buchel, on Buchel human life. Buchel has been accused of, of taking a colonial attitude in the past for a work that he did in Tasmania. And I think this this is an enduring question about his work, what, he, what actually is his position. And he may enjoy playing with that, but I think very many people in the art world are really struggling to support what he does in, in any sense. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I remember when we had the row about the mosque in Venice as well, and there was questions were raised about whether or not, and it was actually a piece written by Anna Summers Cox, our then owner, and um, people actually questioned whether she had the right to criticise him like that. And I think he I think he has the right to make these works, but I think he, we also have the right to criticise him for it. And I, I question the curating of the Biennale. I, quest, I question the curators actually permitting that work to be there under those circumstances. I mean, they could have said, Ralph Rugoff could have said no, and he didn't. Let's talk about a curator who took on the Venice Biennale in 2015, but who sadly died this year, and I think was one of the great curators that we have known in our lifetimes. That's Okwem Wazor, who died in March. Um, all of us have seen many shows that he did. Jane, do you want to pick one that, that really uh, you felt was particularly powerful? Well, I would actually pick his 2015 Venice, but I have to hold my hand up and say that this is because I didn't see his 2002 uh, documenter. Um, the thing that that was the show that really broke him through to international recognition. Interestingly, it was very criticised at the time. I think I think it's very easy for us all to remember it as this seminal show, which it now is absolutely accepted to have been. But a number of curators and artists have told me at the time, a lot of people were not that convinced by it. So just goes to show, doesn't it, that one's first reaction to shows is not always what the longer term reaction becomes. I mean, basically, he was very interested in post-colonial art, being transcontinental, being international, post-colonial work. He showed, he had platforms for that documentary before it opened in Vienna, India, Africa, St Lucia. There were artists from Palestine, Senegal, Congo, so on. Now, that will not surprise lots of the listeners now, particularly the younger ones, I guess. But it was really very unusual, wasn't it, absolutely, Louisa? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. And even even the Venice Biennale that he, that he curated, which was a magnificent show, you know, the great John O'Comfra piece that, that he that he unveiled was was a was a total kind of eye opener and then in you know, early on i mean he in in his in his documenta he gave platforms to Tanya Bergera to Steve McQueen to you know different different artists that now we we know quite well but they weren't well known then in in 2002 and also he's quite hardcore i mean it was quite hardcore that 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 biennale Das Kapital was was read throughout you know and performed and there were different kind of iterations of it throughout the kind of you know several month run of of the biennale you know he was very academically, intellectually rigorous as well. So it wasn't just some sort of, you know, cosy tokenism going on and let's let's now open up, let's now globalise the art world. It was all done with immense academic rigour and also huge charm as well. So he was a fantastic kind of combination of being very, very hardcore, intellectually rigorous, but also very expansive. 
He also, though, did have a great aesthetic sense, didn't mm. he? Because that's probably what makes him different from, say, the the 2017 documenta, which was all about, you know, bits of paper in, in vitrines and, you know, very, very long form, very lo-fi video. Um, he, he did like beautiful things. And I mean, that the 2015 Venice Biennale was about colonialism but also capitalism and he got the seduction of capitalism i mean i mean did andreas gursky looked amazing yeah. in there yeah. and you know he he although Bazalitz later complained because he felt that he'd been put too much into and was all narrative you know there were some great paintings by Bazalitz. so he he saw the art canvas i think as a great big broad wide sweep and he was looking for exciting art uh, intellectually and visually, wherever he could find it. I mean, the Haus der Kunst, where he spent his last 10 years, I mean, that was a fascinating appointment too. I mean, you know, Munich, hello, you know, yeah. whiter than white. And, and there he was, and he put on some magnificent shows there. I mean, Frank Bowling, Yaudan Boake, also Matthew Barney. And I love the fact that his last show there, I mean, it was it was problematic the way that his time ended there and they did not treat him well at all I think he was treated really badly appallingly um, but but his last show was Ella Natsui that the fantastic shimmering curtains of, 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 of works made from bottle tops and made from detritus made into kind of glorious art exactly what you say Jane there's this immensely beautiful eye bedecking this very kind of you know um, fascistic architecture of Haus der Kunst and, and making it into something voluptuous and extraordinary I mean one of the things about him is that it, people talk a lot about the geography of the artists that he presented but there hasn't been perhaps as much emphasis on the formal shifts that emerged with that documenta because you know that was when the longer form when artists started working more and more with longer form video we had the return of the essay film we had this archival sense that artists exploring and and you can say to a certain extent the 2017 documenta that you talked about was a kind of extreme end of that which kind of in a way a lot less beautiful uh, yeah <laughs> used that legacy to a certain degree but but yes he he, he instituted a kind of ch- a kind of formal shift in the way that we've seen art in the 21st century i would argue yeah i think i think he'll be greatly missed i think what's very sad the the last big multi uh, artist show he did there was called, called post war um and he had planned to do uh, two more major exhibitions and the he he said to me that there were plans for them he hoped to t- to tour them and you know i feel very sad that we won't now see part two and part three of the post-war shows. So, yeah, very sad. He was only 55. Too soon. Left too soon. Now, at the other extreme of, of art being made in the 21st century from the kind of stuff that Okoye and Wazel was uh, curating is this sort of wave of populist art that started doing very well on the market, Anna. Yeah, I think this year, Cause and Banksy have been the two artists that have really divided opinion like no others. Um and what for me, what they really um, bring to light is the difference between the kind of establishment of the art world and then this sort of uncontrollable beast that's been born out of really social media as well. I don't think either of them would be where they are without the internet and without Instagram particularly. Um, they are the kind of the people's artists. They're both street artists in a, in a kind of loose sense of, of the word who've now taken the auction rooms by storm. They had, I mean, astonishing figures for, for for sales of their work. I mean, not compared to Coons, yes, but still for artists who 
have been considered in that sort of street art category, really quite extraordinary figures. Yeah, when you consider that um, it was only over a decade ago, I think the Bonhams had their first, what they called, urban art sale, and that was the first time that they sold works by Banksy and things in the auction room. I can't quite remember exactly what they were sold for then but um so this year we saw um it was back in march in hong kong uh that they sold the cause album for 14.8 million dollar us dollars and then also banksy received a new um world record in october during the freeze week sales when devolved parliament sold for 9.9 million pounds so these were huge sums for these artists um massive new records for them and they really put people's backs up I, mean, I think it was um, Francesco Bonami said he described them as the nothings that threaten everything and I think that kind of sums up the way that a lot of the art world whether they consider themselves to be establishment or not feel about these artists because they've really come come in and, and, and mess things up and, and actually they were the two moments of kind of really exciting bidding or well, certainly the Banksy it was the most exciting um, bidding that we've probably seen all year in London uh, apparently took about 13 minutes and they had reams of bidders I don't feel they threaten everything. I don't feel the Biennales and the the major art museums are going to be taken over. Although I would say that the National Gallery of Victoria is having a major cause retrospective next year. So maybe maybe he's right after all. This is an interesting cause. Blurs the boundary between the street art. Because he's represented by Scarsdale. Yeah, he's now. He's represented by a blue chip gallery. So cause kind of straddles the line between between street and... Yeah, and Peritown. There you go. There you go. So he's, he's... Causes much more in that art market system, I think. Whereas Banksy plays it, likes us to think that he plays it, um, but sort of retains a sort of sense of being an outsider. So it's going to be interesting to see how this develops. I mean, I think there's a lot of scepticism in the art world, which is well-founded, that isn't just sort of threatened by these sort of upstarts. It's more about a certain certain level of authenticity. And I, I don't buy that Banksy is an authentic artist. I don't buy his lines. I don't buy the shredded work being a sen- sending up the art, the art market when ultimately he sold that work you know it it, it 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 was it was the least punk thing in the world he, he also made it conveniently break halfway through so they still got some artwork that well, he would destroyed. say oh it didn't you know he would say it didn't break deliberately you know, so I, I, of course he's playing with it and we're talking about it that which is part of what he wants right I think the longer term though is the only way to tell I mean I, I don't particularly like either of these artists but then there's lots of artists who are very established and successful who I also don't like and then there are artists who um, you know I loved at one point and now I'm not so keen and you know who cares what I like or don't like I think I think it's I quite th- banal though their art really that's the, that's the thing I mean you look at Keith Haring in comparison that great Keith Haring show at, at Tate Liverpool you know instantly recognisable street art commodified to the nth degree I mean the, the money the zeros were different in those days but you know but he was a he had something to say he, but, he took his art but what sorry what I was actually going to say though is that time will tell because it takes a lot of people to keep people's markets up you know if 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 in 10 15 years time no museums are showing this work if nobody is writing about this work if nobody's putting making catalogues or exhibitions or whatever then people have made some very expensive mistakes if more and more galleries as you say roll in and start doing cause shows then maybe these you know works will eventually be considered part of the story you know the canon of now if you like i mean yeah so i feel that these people have spent a lot of money and they're going to learn a nasty lesson but you know <laughs> but they're very good stunts that they do i mean the, the giant figure floating in in the harbor in hong kong by cause you know banksy's 
self-destructing artwork. You know, they make these stunts, they attract lots of attention, which I think, you know, is is actually not the same as making an artwork that is Mm. worthy of a lot of attention. So we'll see how those stunts play out. Yeah. So I think we'd like to end by talking about artists we do actually like. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you to each give me your exhibition of the year. Louisa. Dorothea Tanning at Tate Modern, which I thought was a wonderful show. Surrealist artist, married to Max Ernst, but actually I think a fantastic artist in her own right, making paintings, sculpture, and her great work that came was, was on loan um, from the Centre Pompidou, Hotel du Pavot, a hotel room with exploding, mad, bulbous fabric sculpture walls of figures coming out. I mean, just the most extraordinary work. Great show. Jane, your show of the year. Well, this actually does rather roll on from what I said before, although I feel it's unlikely I'm going to start liking Causal Banksy. But actually, I chose Luke Toyman's at um, the Palazzo Grassi in Venice. Now, I remember when I very first saw Luke Toyman's, it was 1994 or 5, 94, I think, Possibilities in Painting, that show that Adrian Searle curated at the Haywood. And I remember it because I remember looking at this painting by Luke Toyman's and thinking... Why is this good? I I don't get this. I you know, this kind of washed out, uh, very sort of shades of lilacs and greys, kind of copies of photographs. I thought, is is this is this the is this the new thing in painting? I don't get it. And here I am, all these years later, and I thought this was an amazing show. It was called The Skin. I think it had so much. It was so still and so cool feeling and yet under the surface there are all these really dark stories he's a very dark man he's I very think, sardonic isn't it there's humor but it's so sort of biting humor yeah. Yeah, yeah and you know a lot of these images are of concentration camps he's and and things connected to the nazi era he's very conflicted like a lot of people i think of his generation you know his his mother was in the resistance his father's family were mostly nazi collaborators apparently the uncle he was named after was in the hitler youth um and you know one of the first things you saw was this picture which i think was called secrets and it is this very small secretive looking man his eyes are shut and you later learn it's Albert Speer and, of course, all of us who read Gitta Sereny's uh, Speer, you know, his his battle with truth, will know the whole story of the people who tried to get him to admit that he knew about the final solution. He's one of the Nazis that amazingly didn't, well, got away. You know, he was he was imprisoned, but then lived the rest of his life in some luxury. And, 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 and there's things like that throughout the show. It's, it's a great show. And I think if you're not sure about Luke Toyman's, this is the show that will change your mind. Anna, your show of the year. I loved um, Lucian Freud's self-portraits, which I think is still on at the... It is indeed still on. Yeah, yeah at the Royal Academy. Um, he's just an artist I've always been really uh, fascinated by. I've kind of grown to like him as a person, probably uh, slightly less in the more you learn about him. <laughs> but, um, but I think he's absolutely fascinating. And, and this is just a brilliant exploration of somebody who's so completely obsessed by observing humans and ob- ob- using paint as well. And... The early works are particularly wonderful. I think a lot of people think that they've managed. That. David Dawson, his um, former assistant, has he's curated the show. Yes, that's Justin, right. yeah, yeah. With, with Jasper Sharp. Yeah. yeah, so he's managed to pull out all of these loans as well. So there's many works in there that you just won't see normally. Um, so they've got these early works, which also have this sort of surrealist um, tinge to them. And then there's a wonderful hotel bedroom which I'd never seen in the flesh before which is him um, with one of his former wives Caroline Blackwood who um, is lying in a hotel bedroom she's got these kind of amazing slender Van Eyck figures she's in bed and very cold and it's just a sort of um, fantastic portrait 
portrait of a marriage slowly breaking down and he's standing in the background looking at her. Shadily. In shadily, yeah. Looking like a complete sod, but a really good painter. Um, I'm going to talk about a show which I start. I said in January I was looking forward to more than any other exhibition, and alas, it turned out to be my favourite exhibition. It was Rembrandt Velasquez at the Rijksmuseum, a show entirely made up of pairs of one Spanish and one Dutch painting, which included, I think, six pairs of Rembrandt next to Velasquez. It was as good as it, as good as it sounded, and in front of one particular pairing, I have to say I probably had the most emotional experience I've ever had in front of paintings. Just this extraordinary acknowledgement of these two great artists working at the same time, knew nothing about each other, but transformed the art of painting. So I think that for me was the show of the year. Thank you all of you. We've got through a lot of subjects we haven't touched on so many others but I think it's been a really great discussion Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you Thank you. Thank you That's all for this week and indeed for this year. You can read more reviews of the year in various aspects of the art world at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store, of course. Don't forget to subscribe to the Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com where you can find the subscription to suit you. While there, you can also subscribe for free to our daily newsletter and to our new monthly newsletter called Art Market Eye. Do subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, and if you've enjoyed it, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find us. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julia Michalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David is also the editor. Thanks to Anna, Jane and Louisa, and thank you for listening. We'll be back towards the end of January with our look at the year ahead. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.